Please turn with me to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and for allowing us to open it up together. And I do ask that you would Help me as I deal with this rather difficult text. I ask that you would help me to preach your word truthfully and and clearly and accurately, and that that all of us here today would be changed by this. Father, we ask that you would stir up our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is a rather... Difficult text to preach, as there is much disagreement on what exactly James is speaking about. The one thing that we do know is that he is placing a high priority on prayer. One of the things that convicts me most as I look at my own life and then I I, I read the Scriptures and look at men throughout history, the the thing that strikes me most is is the, the difference between their prayers, and, and oftentimes my own prayer life. If you ever tried to pray for any length of time, you understand the difficulty of it. That, that it's not an easy thing, but, but this is something that we are constantly, throughout Scripture, commanded to do. And, and this is the example we are given. James is concluding this book with a call to prayer. And we need to remember the larger context in which he is speaking if we are to make sense of what he is saying. As we saw in the very beginning, he is writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. This means he is speaking to Jews who have dispersed due to persecution. They were facing various trials. They were suffering at the hands of unjust people. We saw that in chapter 5. And he, and he deals with with, with trials multiple times throughout this book. And in the midst of understanding their difficulty, James calls these believers to prayer. 
First of all, he tells them that they are to pray in their suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. What is suffering? This is, a, this is a broad word that speaks of various difficulties or trials. And the word perhaps speaks specifically of suffering evil from other people. And this makes sense given the context of this verse. These believers, again, were, were suffering at the hands of persecutors and other unjust men. And James gave instructions on how to patiently endure suffering in the previous verses, but now he tells us one of the most important things we must do when we suffer. We saw, I preached multiple sermons on how to patiently endure suffering. But such instruction could not be complete without speaking of prayer. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Matthew Henry says, in a day of affliction, nothing is more seasonable than prayer. Times of affliction should be praying times. Dear friends, when you suffer, what do you do? Do you complain to other people about it? Or do you go to God in prayer? Matthew Henry says, afflictions naturally draw out complaints. And to whom should we complain but to God in prayer. Now, this does not mean that we whine to God for allowing suffering, but instead of complaining to, to yourself or to others who can do nothing about it, go to God in prayer. Lay your case before Him. Discuss your suffering with Him. This should be our natural response to suffering. Going to God in prayer. In one sense, praying in times of suffering is rather easy. It's easier to remember to pray when we are afflicted than it is when we have some sense of comfort. This is the danger spiritually, right? God said in the Old Testament, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. It's the same thing with our, with our prayer life. We often go to God in our afflictions, but, but what about when we feel okay? when we're cheerful, when we're joyful. And so James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This describes a person who is cheerfully encouraged, a person with a joyful attitude. Now interestingly, this may still be a person who is suffering outwardly. Douglas Moo points out that the Greek word that James uses connotes a state of the emotions rather than an outward circumstance. So these are people who are likely experiencing physical suffering, per persecution, but perhaps their faith has remained strong so that they are able to rejoice even while experiencing various trials as James commanded us to do in chapter 1. They have perhaps mastered what, what James tells us to do in chapter 1, to Count it all joy, my brethren, when you experience, when you experience various trials. <clears throat> but even those who remain joyful need to be prayerful. James says, if you are cheerful, sing praise. We must not forget that praise is an essential element of prayer. We, we are not simply to ask God for things in prayer. We, we are also to thank Him for what He provides. And again, this is much easier. It's much easier for us to ask God for more and for more, especially when we suffer. 
than it is to remember to praise God when we are feeling joyful. Moose says, giving praise to God like our petitions for sustenance in times of trouble should be a regular part of our lifestyle. MacArthur notes that the suffering and the happy, the wounded, broken spirits, and the whole rejoicing spirits are both to pray. The one is to plead with God for comfort. The other is to sing praises to God for comfort given. In whatever situation we find ourselves, we are to be a prayerful people, praying without ceasing. And in certain cases, we even need to call upon mature believers to pray for us. And James moves on to verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I'm going to argue that in this text, James is not speaking of physical sickness in this verse. And I will point out why this is the case as we work through this text. Again, this is, this is a text that as many commentators as you read, you're going to get a different answer to what he's speaking of. It's very difficult to understand, but I will lay my case before you. James says, is anyone among you sick? What does this mean? Well, the Greek word for sick used here often refers to weakness. And that can include spiritual or emotional weakness. I believe if you look at the, at the, at the New Testament, you will find that, that it's used about 18 times to speak of physical sickness and about 14 times to speak of emotional or spiritual weakness. We can't just look at the word to say, what exactly does this mean? It can mean different things given the context. Paul used this word in Romans to speak of Abraham's faith. What did he say of Abraham's faith? He did not weaken, same word, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, he looked at a situation and it didn't look very good, but still he did not weaken, same word, in faith. We also see this in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak, same word, in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the one whose faith would not allow him to eat certain foods for religious reasons was considered by Paul to have weak faith. Again, this is the same word that James uses. Another interesting usage is found in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And here Paul speaks of infirmities, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities that essentially beat him down to the point of weakness, perhaps mental and spiritual exhaustion. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. He says that because the, the spiritual weakness revealed through his suffering caused him to cling to Christ for strength. And those who cling to Christ are, are truly strong. So, so the sufferings he experienced because of his faith made him see his weakness. 
MacArthur notes that James moves beyond the suffering believers of the previous point to address specifically those who have become weak by that suffering. So remember, James is addressing his readers who are being persecuted and even mistreated. The people we learned about in chapter 5, those people who are suffering great injustice. And perhaps some of those people suffering great injustice begin to experience spiritual weakness, spiritual issues because of it. MacArthur goes on, the, the weak are those who have been defeated in the spiritual battle, who have lost the ability to endure their suffering. They are the falling spiritual warriors, the exhausted, weary, depressed, defeated Christians. They have tried to draw on God's power through prayer, but have lost motivation, even falling into sinful attitudes. Having hit bottom, they are not able to pray effectively on their own. In that condition, the spiritually weak need, to need the help of the spiritually strong. So Again, in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, James seeks to encourage those who were suffering. And he does this by first addressing the wicked rich men who were oppressing believers and persecuting them. And he tells these believers of the condition of those rich men. That they, that their fate was not good, so, so don't envy them. And, and so he's seeking to encourage the believers in that. And then in verse 7, James tells believers that they need to endure suffering patiently. And in verses 8-11, through 11, James tells them how it is that they can endure suffering patiently. And we've spent multiple sermons on that. But here's the question. What about those who weren't enduring suffering patiently? What about those whose faith had become battered by such suffering? What about those perhaps who were, who were thinking about abandoning the faith because of such suffering? What about those whose faith was weakened by suffering. James says to the Christian in that predicament, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. As MacArthur noted, the, the spiritually weak need the help of the spiritually strong. Now, elders are not super Christians, but, but elders must be spiritually strong men. If they are not, the, the church is in great trouble. They must be men who can help those who are spiritually weakened. Elders are not just preachers. They're called to be shepherds of God's flock. Shepherding involves much more than public teaching. In our culture today, those who are spiritually battered often refuse to go to the elders for help. Who do they look to? Psychologists psychiatrist. They look to Facebook groups where they post all of their business and say, somebody help me. And then many go to Christian counselors out, outside of the church because they say, well, that's their job to help me when I'm spiritually battered. And they never think to, to go to those who have been called to watch over your soul. When you are spiritually weak, spiritually exhausted, 
spiritually depressed, feeling as though you can no longer go on in the faith, listen, you need to remember that God has given you elders and other mature believers in the church to help you. You need to call for them. You need to go to them. We need to get rid of this this mentality that I am am a, a, a lone Christian. I don't need anyone or anything. But what are the elders to do? Two things James mentions. First of all, the elders are to pray over those saints who are suffering in this way. MacArthur notes the the wounded, exhausted, broken sheep are to go to their shepherds who will intercede for them and ask God for renewed spiritual strength on their behalf. Oftentimes, a believer who is spiritually battered does not pray as he ought. In fact, I would argue oftentimes when we're, when we're experiencing spiritual dryness or weariness, what, what is one of the first things we do? Stop praying. Because it's one of the hardest things that we do. Perhaps sometimes as, we, as, as, as the believer begins to feel spiritually cold and weak, again, he, he neglects prayer altogether. James says, call for the elders that they may pray over you. And then he says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This again is a highly debated subject. What does it mean to anoint people in the name of the Lord? And again, however many commentators or theologians you go to, you're likely going to get different answers as to what exactly this is referring to. Some believe that anointing with oil was medicinal. Others interpret this as something ceremonial. Some say this is symbolic. That this could symbolize the the refreshing, encouraging, and strengthening that would take place. MacArthur, for example, says that, that David expressed God's gracious, compassionate, spiritual restoration of him in these familiar words. You anoint my head with oil. Psalm 23. Dan Doriana says that the anointing can symbolize the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the verse where, where I am willing to say, I'm not sure exactly what this symbolizes. I think the best we can do is to say that it is related to the restoration that takes place. But James does not attribute healing or, or restoration to anointing with oil. He mentions anointing with oil, but, but as we will see, he attributes the healing or restoration to the Lord. He says, the Lord will raise him up. It's not a matter of getting our anointing oil correct. Are we using the right oil? Are we rubbing the right direction? And it's going to be like some kind of magic formula. That's not the point. The Lord is the one who raises up. Again, this is a detail that matters because it's in Scripture. So I'm not saying that it does not matter. But I don't think this is something we should get hung up on as Scripture does not give us much details as to what this means. Again, the large emphasis of this section is prayer. Those who are spiritually weak need to call for those who are spiritually mature to pray over them. And perhaps some will say, that sounds like a useless thing. I would never do that. What good could this possibly do? So James goes on in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The result of the elders praying in faith 
for those who are spiritually weak is that the Lord will answer that prayer by, by saving or restoring that person, raising him up. Again, this is another verse that convinces me that James is not speaking about physical sickness and healing. What James writes in these verses, he states with certainty. If James is speaking of physical healing, and he is saying that the prayer of faith will heal the sick person, then this is, this is, this is the sort of understanding that causes people to embrace the, the, the health gospel. God guarantees you will be healed if you, if you are prayed for in a certain way or by a certain person, or if you have enough faith, if you can pray the prayer of faith. See, the problem is that nowhere in Scripture is physical healing talked about with such certainty. In fact, we know that, that it is often not God's will to physically heal someone. Think of Paul. What did he tell Timothy? I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. The, the great Apostle Paul left a man sick there. Why did he not pray the prayer of faith over him and anoint him with oil? Because God would, would raise him up. Why did he not do this? Even Paul could not heal at will. Some theologians recognizing this dilemma have interpreted James' word to be speaking of people who have the gift of healing. I believe Calvin interpreted the verse this way. As James is obviously speaking of healing with, with a level of certainty. So he must have been speaking only of the apostolic era when people had the gift of healing. Now the problem with that interpretation is that not all elders had the gift of healing in the New Testament. And James does not say, call those who have the gift of healing, but rather call for the elders. And not only that, but, but in a few seconds we're going to see that he even says, pray for one another that you may be healed. But he cannot possibly be speaking of those who have the gift of healing. And so another ter- interpretation is that the prayer of faith it's some miraculous thing where, where God makes an elder know for certain that He is going to heal a person. God secretly reveals that He is going to actually heal this person. And when the elder knows for sure that God is going to do this, he can pray with a certain level of faith and, and this person is guaranteed to be healed. Again, that interpretation has major issues. Mainly that no other New, text, New Testament text support such an idea. Because of this, I am persuaded that the most natural and biblically consistent way to understand this text is to interpret the Greek word for sickness as spiritual weakness. The prayer of faith will restore the one who is spiritually weak, and the Lord will raise him up. See, there is nothing in Scripture which says that the Lord will leave our faith in a bad place, is there? No, nowhere does, does it say that God will leave us spiritually battered, spiritually depressed. In fact, we are told to have peace and to have joy. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They're the opposite of spiritual depression and hopelessness. It is God's will for us for each and every person here to be spiritually healthy. 
But it is not God's will for each and every one of us to be physically healthy at all times. Therefore, James could say with with a level of certainty that, that when the spiritually weak Christian calls for the elders and the elders pray in faith for the spiritual health of that believer, God will answer. God will raise that saint out of his spiritual despair. Now, the next thing James mentions lends even more to this interpretation. He says, and if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now, why is he linking sin with this spiritual weakness? Or as some would say, physical sickness. It is true that sin can cause physical illness. After Christ healed a paralytic, He said, go and sin no more, lest something worse than this come upon you. Paul warns not to partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, because some would be sick or some would even die for doing so. There would be physical consequences. But Scripture also tells us that that not all sickness is due to sin. And whereas not all sickness is due to sin, oftentimes when when Christians are struggling spiritually, it is due to sin. When when believers are spiritually distraught, it is often due to sin. When when a believer's faith has been weakened to the point where he does not even want to pray, sin is usually involved. I believe James added these words, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Because there is an assumption that if an elder is shepherding properly, if he is called on by a believer who is struggling spiritually, he is going to encourage this person to examine himself and to see if there's any sin and to confess his sin before God, who is faithful and just to forgive. Let's apply this text to two separate Scenarios. Scenario one is an elderly saint in the hospital with a serious illness. Now, is there anything in Scripture that would encourage an elder to go to that suffering elderly saint and say, you know what, it's possible that you're in sin right now. You need to find that sin and repent. Do you ever see any of the apostles operate like that? We do not. Now, it's possible that this sickness is due to sin. And I think it's a good personal practice to to constantly be examining your own heart and seeing if there be sin there. But but, but nowhere in Scripture do we see this this example of of when a person is sick, you, you go to them and you figure out whether or not they're committing sin so that they would repent and be healed. And I want you to think of the consequences of doing that. Martin Lloyd-Jones told a story of two elderly women, absolutely godly saints. And these two women got ill, and they were not getting better. And a minister goes to them and encourages them, saying, there must be something wrong. You know, you need to really examine your life right now. You need to see if there's some kind of sin here so that you can repent and that God would forgive you and and heal you. Do you know what these elderly, faithful saints did? They went to their grave in absolute despair, wondering 
What have I done to displease God? What sin have I committed? That I can't figure out which sin it is. I'm trying to confess them all. I'm trying to repent of them all, but I don't know which one it is. Which one is calling, causing this illness? Again, nowhere in Scripture do we see the apostles operating in this way. But let us think about a different scenario. A person calls his elders and says, I am spiritually beat down and weak. I don't care about spiritual things. I can't pray as I ought. I'm depressed and I feel like giving in. As the elders meet with this person to, to pray for him and encourage him, should the elders assume that there is some kind of sin or heart issue that, that is causing this condition or making this condition worse or at least preventing this condition from getting better? You better believe it. As the elders pray for that person and help him to see his sin and confess his sin, he will be raised up and will be forgiven. I believe this is what James is communicating here. And I think this is what James, what Paul rather, communicates in Galatians when he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. This is also the context for what James says in the last two verses of this epistle. But listen to what James is going to say in the next sermon. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Those verses only make sense if what James is speaking of here is spiritual rather than physical healing. The spiritually weak person is in a bad place. And, it, and it is a he is in danger of wandering from the truth. So at the end of this section, James speaks to those who don't call for the elders, but rather do actually wander from the truth. You see, these people he is addressing at this point in time who are spiritually weak, they are in danger of wandering from the truth. And so in the next couple of verses, James addresses those who have actually reached that point. These instructions, again, are to stop us from wondering from the truth. If you are spiritually ill, do not go on like that. Do not say, I don't need anyone to help me. You need to call for the elders or other spiritually mature believers that they may pray for you and help you to see if sin is causing your spiritual apathy. And if you see that sin is a factor, you must confess your sins and God will forgive you. You will be restored. God will raise you up. He will arouse your faith and make it whole again. But again, lest we think that elders have some kind of special healing power, James addresses all the saints. In verse 16, we have a therefore. Paul transitions from speaking specifically to those who are spiritually weak and battered to addressing the congregation as a whole. And what does he say? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James desires the rest of his readers to avoid falling into a place of spiritual distress. 
and knowing how sin operates and affects us spiritually, he, he gives the command to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Now, this does not mean that we all need to start telling everyone every sin we commit. In fact, I would encourage you not to do that. That can be disastrous. But surely, if we sin against someone, we need to confess our sins to them and seek forgiveness. And refusing to do so is, is disobedience. And this sin will, will surely begin to damage your faith. But, but James goes beyond that. He, he does not confine confession simply to those we sin against. What is he doing here? Sin loves to be kept private. It likes to remain a secret. Sin protects itself by avoiding light, avoiding being, being known by others. One, one of the most dangerous things to your spiritual health is, is to harbor secret sin that no one knows about. Why? Because if no one knows about it, there's no accountability. There's no one to call you to repentance. Secret sin can go on living and growing without the hindrance of accountability and the help of others. And you can be sure that secret sin will grow. Sin does not kill itself. It multiplies itself. David, David's secret sin, his secret lust, led to physical adultery which led to public murder. You need to think about that. Your, your secret sins will grow and lead to all sorts of spiritual issues, spiritual weakness, spiritual depression, and even despair. So the point James is making is that believers need to have a level of openness with one another, confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. MacArthur said James is, is exhorting believers to continually confess their sins to one another and not wait until those sins drag them into the depths of utter spiritual death. And it will. You let your sins grow. You, you harbor those sins and keep them safe. They will grow until a beast that will control you. You thought it was this little sin that nobody knew about. And the next thing you know, where's my faith? This sin has, has taken over my life. If there are sins mastering you, dear friends, if you have besetting sins in your life right now, you need to talk to mature Christians you can confide in and confess those sins. Not only does this give you accountability, but so that you can be prayed for. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That is, forgiven. This word here used for healed is the same word that, that Peter uses when he quotes the prophet and says, by his wounds you have been healed. Forgiven for your sins. Because again, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear friends, when you harbor your sins, 
refusing to confess, they grow. When you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you. MacArthur again says, maintaining open, sharing, and praying relationships with other Christians will help keep believers from bottom out in their spiritual lives. Such relationships help give the spiritual strength that provides victory over sin. And they also provide godly pressure to confess and forsake sins before they become overwhelming to the point of total spiritual defeat. Confess those sins that master you to other believers that they may hold you accountable and also pray for you. I can hear someone now. I can hear myself. I'm not confessing that sin simply so a person can pray for me. Because what good does that do? Does it really do good to to pray for one another? Dear friends, are you a believer? Do you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? If you do, then your sins are your 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 prayers actually are, are actually powerful. So James goes on, verse 16, lest we say, what good does it do to, to, to suffer the embarrassment of confessing my sins simply to be prayed for? What good does it do? Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I love the way the, 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 the New King James puts it, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It can accomplish much. Does that sound like a useless thing to you? Again, do, do you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? If you do, this means you are righteous. And the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If you are a Christian, your prayers can do much. Not because your prayers has, has power, have power in and of themselves, but God chooses to work powerfully through the means of answering the prayers of His saints. You want James to prove this to you. The, the power, the prayer of a righteous man. James says, let me prove it to you. I'll give you one example. Elijah. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is a simple illustration. What you say, Elijah was a prophet. James says he was a man the nature like yours. A man who could be depressed, a man who felt hunger, a man who felt pain, a man who felt weakness. His nature was like ours. But he had the audacity to pray that it would not rain for three and a half years. And what happened? God answered that prayer. And then he prayed again that the drought would stop. And what happened? God sent rain. A, a mere man on the earth. A speck on the earth. 
pleading with God to bring forth the rain. And God answers. A human. A man. God used His prayers to begin and end a drought. The fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. You remember what James said in chapter 1 about praying and doubting. Don't be that person, he says. Don't be like a, a, a ship tossed in a, a stormy sea, praying and then doubting while you're praying. I've told you the example before of the, of, the, of the church that had a tavern built next to the church. And, and it caused a lot of issues for this church as, as there was alcohol and, and vomit in the church's parking lot. And so the church says we need to do something. They pray that God will remove this tavern and a tornado comes and the tavern is leveled. And the church stands with not a scratch. And so the tavern owner takes the church to court. And the church said, I don't know why we're in court. All we did was pray. And the judge said, this is the strangest case I've ever seen. You have an unbeliever who believes in the power of prayer and Christians who don't believe in the power of prayer. They were praying. And when God answered, they said, we didn't do that. We, we had nothing to do with that. Is this how we are, dear friends? This is not what James says. James says the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is a serious call to prayer. A call to pray in all circumstances. To call for the elders to pray over you when you are spiritually distraught and a call to pray for one another. We must be a praying people. We must be a people who confess our sins. If we desire to be a spiritually healthy people, we must be a praying people, including confessing our sins to the Lord and to one another. This is James' point. Don't become the believer who wonders from the truth. Be the believer who prays. When that's not enough, he calls for the elders to pray for him. And he confesses his sins to others and, and, and prays with one another. Ravenhill put it this way, that the pastor who is not praying is playing. And the people who are not praying are straying. I believe that's 100% truth. If we are not praying, according to James, we are straying. If we are suffering like these people in this book and we are not a praying people, we are going to be the ones who are wandering from the truth. We must be a praying people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege being able to call upon You in prayer. Father, may we not despise such a privilege. May we not count it a, a light thing that we can stand before the God 
of the universe and ask for help. Father, may we see the the privilege of being told that that as righteous people who have been saved, as people who have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that our prayers availeth much. Father, help us to believe that. That we would pray much. Help us, Lord. Be a people who confesses sin instead of hiding it. People who pray for one another. Not a people who wander from the truth, but who seek to to love you and to to serve you. A people who who instead of being ashamed of sin would would, would rather rather expose themselves and, 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 and show their shame to others that they may have accountability that they can be prayed for. Father, we do thank You. Knowing how, how often we sin, we thank You that if we do confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us. How foolish are we that instead of confessing and being forgiven, we often hide our sins and let them grow. Help us not to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.